Here it is! From deep inside your radio. We don't talk about uh, weather all that often on this program, but uh, this week, and for good reason, but uh, this week in New Orleans, it was unseasonably mild and unseasonably dry for uh, late August. A so-called cold front, which, if the same wind pattern happened in winter, would really be a cold front, cold Canadian air. But it was so-called cold front, so it was less, as I say, less hot and less humid until late in the week when, coincidentally or not, three presidents, ex and soon-to-be, arrived in town. And soon after they spoke, it got hot again. Just saying, you know, just saying. Ladies and gentlemen, 10 years ago today was the day that New Orleans learned that it hadn't dodged a bullet. That was the cliche of August 29th for the parts of town that had not yet realized the disaster that was enveloping it. It was 10 years ago today that pretty much everybody realized that was a bullet not dodged. Um, Michael Chertoff, then Secretary of Homeland Security, later to be a uh, one of the people who made sure on behalf of his client, the Rapiscan Company, that uh, all those defective scanners were installed in our airports. But back when he was a trusted federal official, Michael Chertoff, said uh, on Meet the Press that he only discovered the levees had broken on Tuesday, August 30th, 10 years ago today. Speaking of, of which program, Meet the Press, three or four hosts later now? That that tells you how long 10 years is. Uh, they discussed a New Yorker article by Malcolm Gladwell, a, um, a writer who likes, uh, I think he likes to be a contrarian, and he picked a good subject for it. The uh, topic of the segment was, did New Orleans have to be destroyed to be saved? Uh, that's a little overstatement, as headlines often are, but Gladwell was talking about his piece in which there was there were survey results of people who had been incarcerated before the flood in New Orleans in 2005, and uh, finding a great difference between those who were evacuated out and stayed out and those who returned in terms of their recidivism rate, much higher for those who returned, the conclusion being that something about the community they were part of uh, um, induced them to go back to their life uh, on the uh, wrong side of the law. And that was certainly the conclusion Gladwell drew. Although he said, oh, there was a lot of pain and... Um, it, it's interesting that the community is uh, becomes the focus of blame in this construct. I, I would like to ask, Malcolm, you listening? Uh, did the survey also investigate the uh, effects on non-incarcerated people who returned and those who stayed uh, and those who couldn't return? Uh, Might have been interesting comparison because... If you know New Orleans, you know that it is a set of real communities, not virtual communities, not people who like, you know, stamp collecting and, and 
showed their collections off on the Internet. And so it's arguable, at least, that the positive effect of community would have been equally as powerful as the negative effects. But uh, you might have to you might have to know the city a little bit to know that. Anyway, that the, the uh, conclusion I guess would be after you're finished deporting all the immigrants, deport the criminals. Uh, Malcolm, if you're interested in coming down here and discovering that New Orleans is not exactly like every other city in the United States, I think they still run a train. Maybe. Hello, welcome to the show. Riding on the city of New Orleans Illinois Central Monday morning rail Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors Twenty-five sacks of mail All along the southbound Odyssey sons of Pullman porters and the sons of engineers write their father's magic carpets made of steel and mothers with their babes asleep rocking to the gentle beat and the rhythm of the rails is all they feel Good morning I'll be gone 500 miles when the day is done. Nighttime on the city of New Orleans. Changing cars in Memphis, Tennessee. Halfway home, we'll be there. Mississippi darkness rolling down to the sea But all the towns 
You know, I've read some reports, so I think I'm qualified to tell uh, New York City how to live. From New Orleans, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersol Jr. Oh, we're overflowing with Olympic news this week. It must be a movement. Dayline Berlin, DAS organizers of the Rio Olympics in 2016, said this week they're extremely concerned after German sailor Eric Heil, I'm sorry about that, fell ill following his, he participated in a test sailing event in Rio. Eric Heil, ladies and gentlemen. Heil, who's being treated in a Berlin hospital for several infections, said he was convinced they were caused by the polluted waters, putting more pressure on organizers to secure the safety of the athletes at next year's Olympic sailing, swimming, and triathlon events. Heil's case has been taken up by the German Sports Confederation, which has said it is escalating the matter to Rio organizers and the International Sailing Federation, the ISAF. He won third place was told by the Berlin hospital treating him he'd been infected by multi-resistant germs. Biologists last year said rivers heading into Guanabara Bay in Rio contained a super bacterium resistant to antibiotics that cure ordinary gastrointestinal and pulmonary infections. Of course, as you know, Rio promised to cut the amount of raw sewage floating into the bay by 80%. It has since admitted it is unlikely to meet that target. pressure has mounted on games organizers and uh, even more floating trash in the bay has forced organizers to switch venues for an olympic sailing test event the men's and women's events had to be moved from the course because of objects in the water objects in the water Authorities have dispatched 20 trash boats to scoop up the debris and installed eco-barriers around the courses to try to hold the trash at bay. Not in bay. Accompanying that sailing test event, a task force with eco-boats collected 28 tons of floating rubbish in Guanabara Bay. That's part of Rio's state government plan to clean floating waste in the bay. 3.5 tons of floating rubbish were removed from the waters on average every day of the sailing competition, increasing the safety of the athletes. 
10 eco-boats were used. This is the beginning of a new project by Rio State Government aiming at implementing a system which hinders 95% of all rubbish from entering the waters of the bay. Now, Olympic news in other potential venues. The Los Angeles City Council members delayed a vote this week on making a bid to replace Boston as the U.S. nominee for the 2024 Olympics, asking for assurances that a privately operated bid committee would keep them involved in decision-making over the next two years. It remains likely the council will vote to support the bid, says the L.A. Times. City staff will draft a memorandum of understanding that obligates the bid committee to bring future contracts with the USOC and the IOC before the council for approval, including the IOC's controversial host contract by which cities promise to cover all debts should unexpected costs exceed revenues. That's a nice provision. Would you cover all my debts, please? If my income... Yeah, sure you will. A sports executive who's worked closely with the mayor expressed confidence the matter can be resolved but offer a warning. The IOC has a process, he told the city council. If we're not comfortable from the process with the process, then we shouldn't move forward. Los Angeles bid leaders are scrambling in the wake of Boston's pullout of the uh, bid. The advantage of Los Angeles, of course, it has many existing Olympic-level facilities from two previous experiences hosting the Games. The bid estimates $4.1 billion in expenses with an additional $400 million contingency fund for cost overruns. The mayor has said no taxpayer dollars would be necessary. The Games, he says, will generate a $161 million surplus. The Olympic Games, ladies and gentlemen, in surplus. I think the last time it happened was 1984 in Los Angeles. This involves transforming the Coliseum into a modern Olympic stadium, meaning the University of Southern California would spend $500 million on its previously announced renovation plans for the Coliseum where their football team plays. It is uh, an experience many cities have had that they've had trouble recouping. For the L.A. bid, there are questions about a $1 billion estimate for a village, I guess it would be an athlete's village, along the L.A. River, the one that was uh, almost turned into a concrete sarcophagus by the United States Army Corps of Engineers, that river. A report from city analysts this week suggested the cost could be significantly higher than budgeted, pointing to missing budgetary details. Every Olympics since 1960 have experienced cost overruns. And a top international Olympic Committee official urged Japan this week to speed up the troubled construction of Tokyo's new national stadium so the facility is complete by January of 2020. The minister in charge of the Games doubts that can happen. The IOC wants to run a series of tests before the Games open in August 2020. The stadium has to be available for ceremonies and rehearsals, said the vice president, John Coates. They have to have the handover to the organizing committee by January. He emphasized the timing word by word. That gives Japan three months less than the handover they'd planned for April of 2020. 
April 2020 is the target we could barely make. Moving up the schedule further at this point is, is difficult, says Olympics Minister Toshiki. Toshiaki Endo. It was a heavy request he could not accept immediately, he said. I will seek wisdom from everyone so Japan can finish the construction as quickly as possible and accommodate the request. This, the previous design was scrapped following a public outcry over the $2 billion price tag, nearly double the original estimate, the most expensive sports stadium ever. Endo says he hopes to keep the cost of the revised stadium below $1.7 billion. It's saving a whole $300 million. The government has said it would start over with a new, new design and construction competition. It's all about competition. Because it's the Olympics. It's a movement. And we all need one. Every day. And now, ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen. I said that. We are proud to present Let Us Try, a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We offer you our hand Let us try Well, there are... Um, so many journalists, so-called, from uh, around the country here in New Orleans this week. Um, they must not read the paper, uh, because this appeared in the uh, local newspaper. Of course, it was Friday, and they already had their, uh, their stories scheduled, so uh, maybe they didn't see this. The Army Corps of Engineers must pay the full $3 billion cost of restoring the wetlands destroyed by the agency's improper construction and maintenance of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. That's what a federal judge ruled here in New Orleans on Thursday. Nice timing, babe. Uh, so, I'm sorry, Your Honor, babe. In a major victory for Louisiana U.S. District Judge Lance Afric, ruled the Corps improperly tried to stick the state with 35% of the restoration cost, even though the state had nothing to do with the building of the Mississippi River Gulf Outlet. As a matter of fact, many in the state opposed it, saying it would do exactly what it ended up doing, destroying the wetlands surrounding it and flooding parts of the city during a hurricane. When the state declined to pay the 35%, the Corps of Engineers refused to begin the restoration program, all in violation of the intent of Congress, said the judge. Ten years after Hurricane Katrina, vital ecosystem restoration remains incomplete, he wrote. Rather than abide by the clear intent of Congress and begin immediate implementation of the plan to restore that which the Corps helped destroy, defendants, the Corps of Engineers, arbitrarily and capriciously misconstrued their clear mandate to restore an ecosystem ravaged by the MRGO. The ruling said Congress unambiguously expressed intent... Congress's unambiguously... <laughs> Congress's unambiguously expressed intent does not require the state of Louisiana to pay for the shortcomings of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The judge added the Corps' refusal to begin work on the restoration project has compounded the problems that the MRGO caused. He noted his ruling was likely to be appealed by the Justice Department and the Corps. Yeah, go, Corps. Appeal. 
If they're successful, he said, Louisiana officials may be forced to decide whether to spend nearly $1 billion to repair damage caused by the federal government. Because Louisiana has a lot of money sloshing around. Ask Bobby Jindal. In 2007, Congress passed legislation deauthorizing the 72-mile channel, which was a straight-line shortcut from the Gulf of Mexico to central New Orleans. So the ships didn't have to go up the curvy Mississippi, you know, the Mississippi with all the curves and the curving and the thing. And ordered the Corps to come up, did Congress, with a plan to restore wetlands damaged caused by the canal. Afric, in his ruling, said the intent of Congress in that legislation was clear in requiring the Corps to pay for the full cost. He said the Corps never produced a single statement by any legislator or any other item within the legislative history supporting its view that Louisiana had to pay for a share of the work. In 2012, the then commander of the Corps, General Thomas Bostick, of the Stapler Bostics, approved a $2.9 billion plan for restoration, but he ordered it put on hold because the state of Louisiana refused to pay a 35% share the Corps said was required under a 1987 law that said all Corps water projects should be cost-shared. If Actrix's ruling is appealed and upheld, Congress would still have to appropriate money for the restoration program. Well, let them appeal. Let them try. That's their motto. Let them try. But Dateline Sacramento, 10 years after this city flooded, and it became a wake-up call for flood-prone communities across the United States, Sacramento area officials assessed their progress in making their communities safer. Several projects are close to completion, including an upgrade to 24 miles of levees along the American River. Crews have dug trenches up to 80 feet deep down the middle of the levees and filled them with slurry walls. The improvements are designed to make the levees less vulnerable to leaking and allow the American River to carry 40% more water. The Corps of Engineers celebrated the completion of floodgates at the Folsom Dam this week. When fully operational two years from now, the gates will allow dam operators to re- release water more quickly and make room when large storms cause heavy runoff. A third large project, though, remains half done. State and local governments paid to upgrade about half the levees that surround the Natomas Basin in Sacramento, according to KCRA News. Congress has authorized but not yet funded the other half. The Corps says it has received money to design the improvements but will need Congress to approve the money next year to begin construction in 2017. The region has set a goal of reaching 200-year flood protection. Now, KCRA says that's similar to the level that currently exists in New Orleans. That is not correct, KCRA. It is well established that the new $14 billion system that Mayor and everybody and Bobby Jindal are bragging about is much stronger levees, is built to a 100-year standard. Standard is the minimum necessary to qualify for flood insurance. But let us try. The motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, ladies and gentlemen. Um, you know, they, the, the um, aforementioned news program, Meet the Press, did in fact have the uh, words uttered today on the broadcast by, I believe, the host and one of the guests that the flooding of New Orleans was not a natural disaster. It was caused by the catastrophic failure of the levee system. So they 
10 years later have come around to answering the question why the city flooded. In another 10 years, they may come around to asking the question why the levees failed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. We're so sorry. The chief executive officer of the Napa Valley Wine Train apologized this week to a book club of 10 African-American women and one white woman. They were booted off the luxury tourist train for what train officials had earlier described as loud and disruptive behavior. The wine train was 100% wrong in its handling of this issue, CEO Tony Giaccio said. We accept full responsibility for our failures and for the chain of events that led to this regrettable treatment of our guests, unquote. Giaccio also offered to put into place and take part in additional cultural diversity sensitivity training suggested by the book club's president and one of the women ejected from the train last Saturday. That woman, Lisa Johnson, said the apology felt orchestrated because they were, while they were speaking, Giacco, sorry, Giacco, they put an I in his name in the first part of this, Giacco spoke about the company, quote, wanting to get the media focus off it. It just felt like spin, she said. Still, she added, if they implement those, implement those things, I think it would be awesome. But who's going to make them accountable for that? Yeah, join the club, miss, ma'am. Accountability are not us. A striking agreement between the two accounts. The group of women, including an 83-year-old grandmother, was having a good time on the train and laughing. The train staff began from earlier in the journey to ask them to be quiet. After two warnings, the women were asked to leave the train at St. Helena, where police officers met them. No one is said to have been intoxicated. No arrests were made. The women were driven back to the Napa station. The women's dismay was exacerbated when a train employee posted on the company's Facebook page that they'd been asked to leave because they'd been verbally and physically abusive to other patrons and trained staff. And Jacko, repeating earlier statements by a spokesman, said the post was inaccurate and made in haste to respond to criticism and news inquiries. Oh, well then, it's okay to make it up if you're responding to news inquiries. Josh Takeman husband of Real Housewives of New York City star Kristen Takeman admitted to having an account on the adultery finding website Ashley Madison and apologized in a statement to Us Weekly for registering on the website. He shares two kids with his model wife. Just last week, hackers kept true to their promise to release stolen subscriber information in a massive leak. According to the Daily Mail, Takeman signed up for an account on the affair website in June 2011. The entrepreneur spent thousands on Ashley Madison, making 62 paid transactions. The source told Us Weekly at the time that his wife believed her husband. The entrepreneur is one of several celebrity husbands to be named in the scandal. 19 Kids and Counting star Josh Duggar confessed to cheating on his wife in a statement last week. After Gawker revealed he had two accounts on the infidelity platform. He, was, he wasn't even faithful to himself. And Christian blogger Sam Radar. <laughs> I just want to say that description and name. Christian blogger Sam Radar also confessed to using the website, although he never cheated. He was a virtual cheater. And Snooky's husband was linked to Ashley Madison as well. Who, who would have thought that reality TV people would be 
Deadline Mexico, Monaco's Prince Albert II apologized this week for his country's role in deporting Jews to Nazi... Oh, sorry, Deadline Monaco, to, in deporting Jews to Nazi camps during World War II. More than seven decades after police rounded up scores of people from the seaside principality, including those who had sought refuge from the Holocaust in what they thought was a safe and neutral land. To say this today on this day before you is to ask forgiveness, Albert said in a poignant speech. Recounting actions by Monegasque police during the war. At his side were two renowned Nazi hunters and Holocaust researchers, Serge and Beat Klarsfeld, who encouraged Albert's father to begin examining Monaco's role during the war. He unveiled a monument at the Monaco Cemetery this week carved with the names of Monaco's deported Jews. They were among about 90 people deported from Monaco. Only nine survived. Monaco was officially neutral at the start of the war, was later occupied by Italian, then German forces. Quote, we committed the irreparable in handing over to the neighboring authorities women, men, and a child who had taken refuge with us to escape the persecution they'd suffered in France. In distress, they came specifically to take shelter with us, thinking they would find neutrality. Albert said the Monaco government has approved nine requests for compensation for property of deported Jews seized by Monegasque authorities. Compensation? What a concept. President Obama has apologized. No, not for coming back to New Orleans and still calling it a natural disaster. No, not for that. No, to Japan's Prime Minister Shinzo Abe after WikiLeaks claimed the U.S. had spied on Japanese politicians. Abe said the allegations could shake our relationship of trust. And finally, Howie Mandel is apologizing after a joke he made during Tuesday's live telecast of America's Got Talent didn't quite land correctly when contestant Stevie Starr, who's a professional regurgitator, did his act. He swallows random objects whole and brings them up back up in one piece. While he was being critiqued, Mandel praised him in a slightly off-putting way. Admitting that his comment would probably come out wrong, Mandel said, You, sir, make bulimia entertaining. I, <laughs> a few periods later, Mandel apologized on the air. I just want to take a second just to apologize. I made a comment earlier. It's live television. I wasn't thinking. I made light of bulimia, which is a very serious eating disorder and mental health issue. I deal with mental health all the time. Howie Mandel deals with mental health all the time, ladies and gentlemen. And I did something stupid. I should never make light of it. I apologize to anybody that was offended. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes. The star of America's got mistakes. Howie Mandel, the apology of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It is. A copyrighted feature for this broadcast. They said things down here were bound to change, and I said. Never count your chickens for the cracks begin to show So we live in plague and party, calm and fright Knowing those little pills will remain on the bedside table at night For all this talking Talking about the water
Winds will come and winds will go, but they don't scare us like the mediocrity we have built down below us. And times were we'd stay and raise a hurricane, but we know nothing's different, nothing's changed in paradise lost again. It's all just talking. From New Orleans, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, time to follow the dollar. A study which was cited by public health officials in England when they advised that vaping, e-cigarettes, is safe, was funded by the e-cigarette industry. Last week, Public Health England launched a report encouraging Britain's 8 million cigarette smokers to switch to e-cigarettes, stating they're 20 times less harmful than traditional, I believe they call them in England, fags. They called for e-cigarettes to be prescribed on the national health, claiming that vaping was 95% safer than smoking tobacco. Now it's emerged, according to the Telegraph, that their report relied on a 2014 study conducted by scientists in the pay of e-cigarette companies. Writing in the respected medical journal, The Lancet, health inspectors warned that 
PHE had based a major conclusion on an extraordinarily flimsy foundation. I want to start with one of those to give money. Extraordinarily flimsy foundation. It uh, accused the agency of falling short of its mission to protect public health. Oh, that oh, that whole thing. The vapor from e-cigarettes could be harmful for people nearby, according to the World Health Organization. The Lancet revealed three of the 11 authors of the original study were paid advisors for the e-cigarette industry. The editors of the journal European Addiction Research even issued a warning alongside the article saying there was a potential conflict of interest. But PHE, the Public Health England, failed to declare the warning when they presented its findings to journalists at a briefing. The uh, WHO report, World Health Organization, that said it could be toxic to bystanders, said manufacturers should be prevented from marketing e-cigarettes as smoking cessation aids until they provide robust scientific evidence to back up the claim. A follow-up report in October found most had not been scientifically tested and warned that nicotine can contribute to cardiovascular disease, neurodegeneration, and tumor growth. It concluded that e-cigarettes pose serious threats to teenagers. Follow the dollar, ladies and gentlemen. Or the pound, in that particular case, to be fair. Um, and a related story. Neonicotinoid pesticides, that's nicotine in pesticide form, kind of related, chemically related, uh, applied as sprays pose a risk to bees of all kinds, according to a new study. Three pesticides currently banned in Europe, all neonics, pose a high risk to bee populations, according to new research from the European Food Safety Authority. Farm leaders and manufacturers insist that when the pesticides are used as seed coatings on oilseed rape, they're safe, even though research has indicated that plants whose seeds are treated with the pesticide express pesticide residue all over, including in their leaves and their fruit. Friends of the Earth is challenging the English government after it granted farmers in four English counties emergency use of two of the chemicals on oilseed rape following a request by the Farmers Union. Farmers have unions. Now I've heard everything. Follow the dollar ladies and gentlemen, or the pound, or the euro, whatever currency you like. It will tell you so very much. Now, let's get back to entertaining news. The uh, American presidential campaign preliminaries have been, everybody now acknowledges, hijacked by a guy who really doesn't want all the attention, uh, Donald Trump. The New York Times this week had a very unusual front-page News analysis, I think, well, I don't know what page it was on, but it was, I read the online edition, but it was a very prominently displayed news analysis. I think it was on the front page of the online edition. A news analysis about uh, Donald Trump's press conference antics uh, with the uh, reporter from Univision. Thank you. Um, Which came as close as I've ever seen any news analysis to calling uh, the subject of that news analysis um, psychologically disturbed. There was no response from Donald Trump. He was busy continually chasing after the guy from Univision. But, you know, one has to say, hey, New York media, where were you 20 years ago when this when this whole act started? You gave this guy the oxygen that's uh, floating his or the helium that's floating his balloon now. Um, nonetheless, Dr. Ben Carson is catching up uh, with Trump in the latest polls out of Iowa, like anybody cares about polls. Um, and it, it struck me that 
the very very thing that made Trump attractive to a certain group of viewers, because after all the polls right now are about who do you want to see on television, um, was that you never knew what was going to come out of his mouth. In the last few public appearances that I've had the pleasure to watch on your behalf, ladies and gentlemen, he seems to have learned one lesson from politicians. Repeat your applause lines over and over and over. Don't vary from them. Now, he varied in just in terms of kind of playing cat and mouse with this uh, reporter from Univision. Es verdad. But the content of what he actually has been saying has become more and more based on his applause lines. So it's possible. I mean, you know, the people on the Sunday Yak shows keep sitting around going, why, why, what's this phenomenon? Why doesn't he? The phenomenon, sirs and madams, is called celebrity. But uh, people get tired of a lot of celebrities, especially ones who repeat stuff over and over again. So uh, to prevent that from happening, I think what Donald Trump needs, um, I've, I've watched a couple of his rallies. He has a different rock and roll song being played as his introduction for each of the rallies. I think he needs his own campaign song. I love you. Thank you. Make way for my plane. We're winning the air. Make space for my name. Right? Make way for my hair. Can you believe the incredible crowds I attract? You know I went to Wharton. Did I tell you that? That's an actual fact. I'll set the Chinese, the Chinese, and the Mexicans straight. And they'll pay for it. It's just my greatness. Makes me so great. Now I finally get to build some history. You know, I can't believe I'm me. I'm me. self-made pedigree that's me 
can't believe I'm me. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we've got the ultra modern knack of getting oil from the deepest crack. So give the boys just a bit of slack and say a hearty what the frack. What the frack? Fracking, hydraulic fracturing of shale deposits to release. Oil and gas, just explaining it for late tuner renters. Fracking triggered a 4.4 magnitude earthquake in northeastern British Columbia last year, CBC News learned, making it one of the world's largest earthquakes ever triggered by the process. British Columbia's Oil and Gas Commission confirmed the cause of the earthquake in an email statement to the CBC only this week. The uh, 4.4 magnitude quake was felt on August of last year was preceded by a 3.8 magnitude quake in late July, also caused by fracking. Twin quakes. That could be a new TV series. BC's Oil and Gas Commission told the CBC several companies were doing hydraulic fracturing in the area at the time, and several more were disposing of fracking waste. Mmm. That's good waste. The commission said it was Progress Energy's operations that were associated with triggering the event. Since that earthquake, Progress Energy has been ordered to make progress, to reduce the volume of fracking fluid being used, and the company has complied. That's good progress. As well, new seismic equipment has been set up in the area. No new earthquakes have been detected since then. Last week, Progress Energy temporarily shut down another fracking site after a 4.6 magnitude earthquake hit just three kilometers away. British listeners, no, you wouldn't know what a kilometer is either. So, some, some, some distance. Let's just agree on that, shall we? Some distance away. I don't know. What the frack? And now, news of our friend the Adam. Clean. 
save to save to meter. Save, save to save to meter. Our friend Addy the Atom, have you, uh, you enjoyed all the festivities here this week? Yeah, it's like Mardi Gras without the fun. Indeed. Deadlines, Columbia, South Carolina. Addy the Atom, ladies and gentlemen. For the second year in a row, the South Carolina Court of Appeals has ripped the, that state's Environmental Protection Agency for failing to properly oversee a leak-prone nuclear waste dump. What could go wrong? Yeah, that would be my question. This time, the appeals court isn't telling regula- regulators when to resolve problems at the 44-year-old site. Well, that's pretty old for nuclear waste. Yeah, it only lasts 500,000 years, right? Yeah, it's a start. In an August 12 ruling, the disappointed landfill critics... I didn't like that last landfill. It uh, seemed to have disappointing uh, camera work. The court backed away from requiring a specific timetable to improve conditions at Chem Nuclear's dump site near the Savannah River. What could, you're right. What could go wrong? Got to be near a river. I guess you do. A new yet-to-be-released Energy Department commissioned study concludes that it would be cheaper and far less risky to dispose of 34 metric tons of U.S. surplus plutonium at that federal nuclear waste depository in New Mexico than to convert it into mixed oxide fuel for commercial nuclear power plants in South Carolina. The very same. Yeah, it's the same state. Wow. The Energy Department study was produced by a team of experts from U.S. nuclear laboratories, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Tennessee Valley Authority, and the commercial nuclear power industry. It's consistent with conclusion of a earlier Union of Concerned Scientists report, which recommended that the Energy Department shut down the mixed oxide facility, whose estimated life cycle cost has ballooned... We like balloons. ...from $1.6 billion to more than $30 billion. It's cheap at, ha- at, what, at four times the cost. ...and shipped the surplus plutonium to the New Mexico s- facility. Which is closed. Well, uh, temporarily. The unreleased report describes in detail the difficult downward-spiraling circumstances that have plagued the MOX program and contributed to the delays and massive cost overruns at the half-built facility located at the Savannah River site. There's that river. It's a, I guess it's an import, a nuclearly important river. According to the Union of Concerned Scientists, a better alternative would be to downblend the surplus plutonium method that the Energy Department has already used to dispose of several metric tons of plutonium. It's diluting the plutonium with an inert, non-radioactive material and then sending it to New Mexico. Why don't you just turn it all into an inert material? Because you can't. Oh. Pakistan... Hey, here's good news. All right. Pakistan could have the world's third largest stockpile of nuclear weapons after the U.S. and Russia within a decade if it continues to build up to 20 nuclear warheads annually. According to a new report written by respected U.S. analysts. I hate those reports written by disrespected analysts. Yeah, they are a drag. Published by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace concludes that Pakistan is outpacing India with its neighbor and rival appearing to produce just five nuclear warheads annually. Western diplomats who keep close track of the two countries' nuclear capabilities believe India has about 100 warheads, Pakistan 120. Asked to comment on the findings, a senior Pakistani government official told the Financial Times... The projections in the report for the future are highly exaggerated. Pakistan is a responsible nuclear state, not a reckless one. That's reassuring, isn't it? Yeah. Nevertheless, <clears throat> says the Financial Times, the buildup of nuclear capacity is striking in the context of efforts to prevent neighboring Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Pakistan became a nuclear power 
1998 when it carried out a series of six nuclear tests just three weeks after India carried out a second series of its own tests. Neither country has signed the Nuclear Proliferation Treaty. I feel safer already. Dateline and we talk Marshall Islands. Marshall Islanders are being warned that digging for copper around a nuclear waste dump on one of their islands could expose them to harmful radiation. Who knew? People on the island have been searching out copper wire and cabling around a storage bunker for the radioactive waste produced from U.S. nuclear testing during the 50s and 60s. We didn't know it was dangerous then. Yeah. Locals raised concerns over damage to the, uh, sorry, a um, member of the Marshall's Island Monitoring Group says residents should be careful when looking for copper. Significant levels of residual contamination in the soil. One of the primary ways you can be exposed to the contamination is through inhalation from resuspended dust. That would be dump dust? That would be dump dust. People tested so far have not been adversely affected, but a risk remains. Deadline Fukushima. Fishermen in Fukushima Prefecture on Tuesday approved a plan by TEPCO to take contaminated groundwater that's continuously flowing into the wrecked number one nuclear plant and dump it into the ocean after moving most of the radioactive materials from it. Big dump show this week. Yeah. TEPCO hopes the measure will curb the amount of toxic water that's building up at the complex. Local fishermen had long opposed the plan and concerned it would pollute the ocean and contaminate marine life. The work of decommissioning is necessary for the revival of the fishery industry, said the chairman of the fisheries cooperative. He called on TEPCO to ensure it will only discharge water that does not contain radioactive materials exceeding the legally allowed limit. They can be trusted to do that. I couldn't finish the word? I couldn't. Speculation is swirling that Three Mile Island could close down after no one purchased a year's worth of the power plant's future electricity because it's economically no longer competitive. One of Britain's... Uh, we'll deal with that next week. Interesting. And the safety culture at the Hanford, Washington nuclear waste project, cleanup project, is improving, said Energy Department officials at a public meeting. The improvement is in its early stages and could stall if not given it continued attention. Safety culture. We've seen signs of positive projects progress, but there remains a tremendous amount to be done, says the DO, Department of Energy official. The safety board, the National Defense Nuclear Facility Safety Board, traveled for an update on progress in improving the safety culture at Hanford, but no action was taken at the meeting because the board failed to have a quorum. I guess it wasn't important. And, speaking of that Hanford plant, a nearly completed government facility intended to treat the radioactive byproducts of nuclear weapons production is riddled with design flaws that could put the entire operation at risk of failure, according to a leaked internal report. A technical review of the treatment plant on the grounds of the former Hanford nuclear site identified hundreds of design vulnerabilities and other weaknesses, some serious enough to lead to the spills of radioactive material. The draft report is the latest in a series of blows to the cleanup effort at Hanford, where much of the U.S. plutonium stockpile originated. Design flaws won't hurt you. New Orleans proved that. News of the Atom, ladies and gentlemen, clean, cheap, cheap. Too safe to meet her, our friend the Atom.
ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR Worldwide throughout Europe, the use and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet, on Soho Radio in London, on FM 104 in Berlin, around the world via the, the internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want at harryshear.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available as a free podcast at SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and tunein.com. And it'd be just like the Corps of Engineers paying to clean up their mess. If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much, uh huh? Tip of the show, chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson here at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, playlist of the music heard here on, your opportunity to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts, it's all at harryshearer.com. By the way, if you listened to um, The Crescent and the Shadow, my tenure look back at New Orleans on BBC Radio 4. You can still listen to it, by the way, at bbc.co.uk slash Radio 4. There's a online extra segment of it available at harryshear.com. And my film about the flooding of New Orleans, The Big Uneasy, is for a limited time only free to watch on Vimeo. This show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.